For those of you who haven't been here recently, we're going through the book of First Timothy on Sunday mornings. We're in First Timothy chapter 6. If you'd open your Bibles to First Timothy 6. By way of recap, Paul tells us what his mission statement is in writing this letter to Pastor Timothy in the church in Ephesus. In 1 Timothy 3.14, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's what we are, the church of the living God, pillar and buttress of the truth. Toward the end of this letter in chapters 5 and 6, he begins to discuss all the specific relationships in a church, and he addresses them and gives them some instructions on how they should relate to each other. Namely, that we are a family, we're a household of God. The older men view the younger men as fathers and sons, and the older women and younger women as mothers and daughters, and all of us as brothers and sisters. But he also addresses specific relationships, and that's what he's doing here in verses 1 and 2. He addresses slaves and masters. John MacArthur wrote a a very helpful book. I read it a number of years ago and pulled it back out. It's called Slave. I highly recommend it to you. It's endorsed by a number of wonderful authors, including R.C. Sproul. Uh, But it's difficult for us to to process slaves and masters in our culture. Here's what John MacArthur says. The word Christian only appears three times in the New Testament. In addition to Christian, the Bible uses a host of other terms to identify the followers of Jesus. Scripture defines us as aliens and strangers, as citizens of heaven, as lights to the world. We are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, with God as a father, we're members of his body, sheep of his flock, ambassadors in his service, friends around his table. We are called to compete like athletes, to fight like soldiers, to live like branches in a vine, and even to desire his word as newborn babies long for milk. All of these descriptions, each in its own unique way, help us understand what it means to be a Christian. Yet, the Bible uses one metaphor more frequently than any of these. It's a word picture that you might not expect, but it's absolutely critical for understanding what it means to follow Jesus. It's the image of a slave. So although 1 Timothy 6 is referring to actual slaves in a church, in the church in Ephesus, and their masters, we also see great help in the Christian life by understanding this well. That's going to be what I try to impart to you this morning. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. This word was preserved for you through the millennia by the Holy Spirit for this very morning, for this moment. Hear God's holy word. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Amen. Please be seated. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. 
at this time. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we thank you for your word and precious Holy Spirit. We pray that our hearts would be softened and our eyes would be opened. Strike a straight blow with this crooked stick, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So can there be any more awkward or distressing topic to discuss in public today than slavery? I don't think so. Our culture would have you believe that slavery is the unforgivable sin Worse than abortion or the Holocaust, or really anything else you can imagine. And in this environment, all of us naturally recoil from discussing such a topic at all. This is unfortunate, especially for Christians, because it's such an often used metaphor in the Bible. But we are like most Christians, we prioritize our metaphors. The ones we really love, those are the ones we focus on. We all love being God's child. We all love having God as our Father. And of course, I believe this is the most significant metaphor that you can grasp as a child of God. But only slightly less important is the metaphor of God as your Master, Jesus as your Master and Lord. And as we read, it's the most often used biblical metaphor describing our Christian life and our relationship with God. The most used in the Bible. In the New Testament, Jesus leans on this metaphor heavily, as does Paul and Peter and James and John. In the Old Testament, God himself calls himself the Lord and his people, his slaves. I will say as a side note, we have been conditioned as Americans and through our history to think of slavery in some way that refers to ethnicity. But the biblical writers thought of no ethnicity when they talked of slavery at all because anyone could be a slave of any ethnicity. So nothing what I'm going to say this morning has anything to do with your ethnicity. It's a plain fact that for Christians, all of us are slaves of Christ. All of us. That's the title, Slaves of Christ. We're going to discuss this in more detail next week. I'm going to go through the text with you to start to see what it means to serve someone, even though we don't have slavery today, thankfully, what it means to serve one who's in authority over you and how we should do that. Secondly, we'll look at a historical context of slavery in the first century. And thirdly, we'll look at the biblical usage of the word slave, because I believe it's also very, very helpful So you heard the text as I did. I just want to show you a few other passages where this exact topic is referenced. It was a a problem in the church, actually. You had masters and their slaves, both saved with a Lord Jesus over them both, but worshiping together in a church. How is this supposed to work? Paul addresses it in almost every one of his epistles. This is Ephesians. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant, slave, or free. Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master And yours is in heaven. Master with a capital M. 
God, and that there is no partiality with him. Listen to Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with a sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will not be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And there are many other passages, of course, that we could reference, but you get the idea. Paul knows that he has to address this issue in the church. There are many reasons for it. So what he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.1 is that those who are slaves should regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Now, he doesn't say regard them as worthy of honor if they're good masters. He says because of their position, regard them as worthy of honor. Timothy's church, like all the churches of the era, were filled with slaves and freemen, and often masters and slaves worshiping together. It appears that the name of God was being reviled in public because some slaves refused to honor their masters. Maybe they thought, we both have the same master in heaven, and that means I don't really need to give you honor, even though you own me and my duty is to serve you. I refuse to do that. Paul said, no, that's not the case. We both have masters in heaven, master and slave, but this means that we should all the more serve those who are appointed over us by God. And that's the first reason. You remember Joseph was sold as a slave by his brothers. He was a slave for many years. And Joseph told his brothers later, you didn't do this, but God did this. God ordained these circumstances. But the most important reason why Paul wants them, slaves, to honor their masters is so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. This is a theme throughout all of the epistle of 1 Timothy. That the name of God and the teaching would not be reviled. And how would it be reviled? If you don't do your duty to the person God has appointed over you. Those who call themselves Christians and don't do this are being God's name, causing God's name to be reviled. I believe the application for us is clear. We also have those over us. If you work in the public sphere, um, you know that you, are, you have a boss. Uh, for those of us who don't work in public but have uh, jobs that keep us at home, we still have political uh, people who rule over us. We need to honor them because they've been appointed by God, not because they're good rulers, not because they're good bosses, but because God has put them in authority over us. Do you realize that there's not a single person in authority in any case, anywhere in the world, that hasn't been put there by God himself? 
So this gives us comfort even in the midst of bad authority, bad rulers. We know that God is doing a work. So wherever you are in life, make sure that you are serving those in authority over you well. If you live a life filled with sin or anger or deceit, with regard to the authority over you, or grumbling, or laziness, or worldliness, or any kind of indulgence, if you're not diligent in doing your duty before God, you're causing the name of God to be reviled. Jesus said much of the same all through his preaching and teaching. The Christian life is not about pleasing yourself. It's about pleasing your master in heaven. It's not possible... You should know this. It's not possible to have Jesus as your Savior and refuse Jesus as your Lord. He's going to be your Savior and Lord and Master or you're not going to have Him. You don't get Him on your own terms. You must die to yourself and take up your cross every day to follow Him. Slaves had to do their duty to their masters and give them honor as those appointed by God and we must do the same. He goes on to address another issue in verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful. So verse 1 addressed all slaves and all masters, believing and unbelieving. But now he says those who have believing masters in, in particular must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since they know that those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Some of you may have been in this situation as a, a leader in the Air Force. Many people knew that I was a Christian, and I usually got one of two responses of those who were serving under me. They would kind of take advantage of this relationship that we have to their detriment as working for a brother in Christ and actually do less than someone who wasn't, quote-unquote, a Christian. But those who really understood the relationship who knew that God had put me in authority over them, served me all the better because they were serving the Lord. And that's the theme. No matter who is in authority over you, you serve them as unto the Lord because you're both serving God. So if you have a Christian boss, serve him as unto the Lord. If you're a Christian employer, treat the Christians underneath your authority with great love and care and respect. You should be working harder for brothers and sisters in authority over you. So slaves were to serve their Christian masters well. Their believing masters were told to treat their slaves well. Why? Because we all have the same master in heaven. Jesus exampled for us what this absolute obedience should look like. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 5, a familiar passage. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, in other words, he was God, he was divine, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow 
in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we who are Christ's are subjects of the King and slaves of the Master, and our Master has already come as a human. He left his glory in heaven and took the form, Paul says, of a slave on earth. He came to serve, not to be served. So Paul desperately wants those in the church to treat each other well, especially those in the very difficult position of slavery and masters in the same church. Slaves and masters are brothers and yet called to still do their duty unto God. That's the text. Now I'm going to spend the rest of our time uh, just discussing this topic in general because it's something obviously we don't talk about that much. So let's look at the historical context of slavery. Is this a new thing that Paul's bringing up? Is it just springing upon the church and no one had any clue of how to address each other or what to do? No, that's not the case. Slavery was an integral part of Israel's redemptive history. And I want you to hear those words. Slavery was an integral part of Israel's redemptive history. In Genesis 15, God told Abraham his descendants would do what? They were going to be slaves for 400 years. God told Abraham this was going to happen. Of course, Joseph, Abraham's great-grandson, was sold as a slave by his own brothers. And we're told, the scriptures insist that this was God's doing. Israel served the Egyptians as slaves in Egypt 400 years. But then in the Exodus, we read that God delivered them from slavery in Egypt and brought them out. This is the, the seminal event in the whole history of Israel, is that event, the Exodus, coming out of slavery. But it wasn't out of slavery to Egypt into absolute freedom. It's not what the word teaches. After crossing the Red Sea, God told them that they were now his possession. Exodus 19.5. They were the possession of Pharaoh, and now they're possession, the possession of God. In the law, God refers to the nation of Israel in Leviticus 25.55 as his slaves. So the people had been delivered from slavery in Egypt and become the slaves of God. They were transferred from the kingdom of Pharaoh into the kingdom of God. So it's no wonder that the Old Testament prophets and patriarchs are referred throughout the scriptures as God's slaves. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, Elijah, most of the prophets. Slavery was part of life in the ancient Near East. The Israelites knew what slavery was as did the New Testament world, the first century world that Jesus lived in. This is the Greco-Roman world, the New Testament world, and slavery was still everywhere. Indeed, one-fifth of all the Roman population were slaves. One-fifth, 10 to 12 million people. Slavery was an unquestioned part of life, so much so that slaves who gained their freedom often purchased their own slaves. It was like, they're, they're moving up 
the rung or the ladder of social standing. Unless you romanticize slavery at that time, it's always been the same. Slaves in the Greco-Roman world were absolute property of their masters. They had no rights in the Roman world, no legal status. They were literally owned by their masters. And their masters provided for all of their needs. And their fortunes depended on the goodwill and the character of their masters. Was their master a good master? Was their owner a good man? Or was he evil? Was he wicked? Well, what did they do? Slaves were trained to do all kinds of things. Some were teachers. Some were entrusted with the master's children. And actually, this is very common. You have a slave who's been trained in whatever the, the classics were that you wanted your children to learn. And then your children were entrusted to that particular slave to teach them how to be a man, how to be a Roman, or how to be a daughter and a mother. Some were farm workers, some were cooks, household workers. Others were doctors or protectors or soldiers. Many were entrusted with the entire household, like Joseph was with Potiphar. The entire household was entrusted to some slave. Such was their worth to the house and to the master. Slaves did all kinds of work, skilled and unskilled labor. And walking down a Roman road, John MacArthur says, you probably wouldn't be able to distinguish between a free man and a slave. They look the same. But the fact remains, the closer, if you were a slave, the closer you worked with your master, the more you knew your master, the more honored you were. And the more prestigious was your master, the more honored you were. In other words, if you were a slave of Caesar, you were honored and respected. People deferred to the slaves of Caesar because they knew that he worked for Caesar himself. But the one thing that united slaves of every station, no matter who their masters were, was that their lives depended on the goodwill of their masters and they had one purpose in life, and that was to please their master. That was their chief end. Please their masters in everything. Their lives depended upon it. So when our Lord and the apostles in the New Testament spoke of slavery, they understood completely the context from the history of Israel, from the culture of the ancient Near East and the Greco-Roman world, they knew that slavery meant personal ownership. So when they leaned upon this to show what our relationship with God was like, they knew exactly what they were doing. Exactly. But not so much is this reflected in most translations of the Bible. I want to discuss this. This is the third point is the biblical usage of the Greek and Hebrew words for slave. So you should know that we believe that the Greek and the Hebrew, the original texts, which we don't have, but we have very reliable copies, and we know this, and I can explain why later. But we believe that the Greek and the Hebrew, as it came originally to the hands of the writers, is inspired and without error. It's from God. So for us to understand the scriptures, we all need to learn Greek and Hebrew. So we can start a class, and I'll teach you what I know, which is about that much, although I've studied it for a few years. But we should learn the Greek and the Hebrew so that we can understand the Scriptures. That's what 
part of why you pay your pastor. Because I've had to study the Greek and I've had to study the Hebrew and it's my joy and my pleasure to to continue to do so. But all over the Bible, God's people are referred to as his slaves. And this is a, a takeaway. I just want you to wrap your arms around it and begin chewing on it and mull it over because it is true. And I'm going to show you why. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word ebed can refer to actual slaves to a human master, and often it does. But God uses that word to describe in Hebrew our relationship to God 250 times or more in the Old Testament. So the word itself is used 790 times in the Old Testament. And when Jewish theologians, 70 of the smartest Jewish theologians in the world 200 years before Christ, translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, they translated that Hebrew word into slave about 400 times, half of the times. So the Hebrew word does have a little bit of uh, variance in meaning, but the Jewish theologian, theologians knew that this word meant slave at least half the time. When you read your Old Testament, you probably don't see that. We'll talk about why in a moment. The same happens in the New Testament, though. In the New Testament, the Greek word is doulos. It just means slave. Much like the English word means slave. It only means slave. If you are translating English slave into some other language, there's no equivocation about how to do that. You wouldn't translate it into a word that meant servant or that meant anything else. In English, slave just means slave. Doulos is exactly like that in Greek. The New Testament uses the Greek word doulos to, depl- to describe the Christian life about 40 times. And our relationship with God about another 40 times. But you didn't know that just by reading your Bibles. It didn't come through. But over and over again, this is heavily leaned upon and The apostles even refer to themselves as slaves of God and slaves of Christ over and over again. But you don't get that. Why? Because you don't read Greek. Most of you, some of you do, I'm sure. Most of you don't read the Greek. So it's not as evident to you. So why is that? Why is doulos translated into something other than slave? Most English translators, I believe, all of them well-intentioned, have been hesitant to use the word slave. In the King James Version, there was confusion maybe with the Latin word service. The Latin Bible was very prevalent when the King James was translated. Service is Latin for slave, but service is also very similar to the English word servant. So at best, maybe there was some confusion for the King James anyway, but for modern translations, I fear that there's just a real fear to say the word, a real fear to write the word in print, a fear of our culture. It's just much easier to translate the word doulos as servant and put a little superscript number next to it and have a little note at the bottom that says, this is a really difficult word. It really means slave. The reality is it's a very simple word. It's one of your first vocab words you'll learn in Greek, and it means slave. 
regardless of the reason. Here's the point. Whenever you don't understand the word of God as it's given to us, the church suffers. So these translators thought they were helping us in some way. We suffer because we don't see what God is saying. If they had wanted to say servant in Greek, there's about 12 different words that mean servant. But there's only one word that means slave. And it's used everywhere. And it's not translated well. So when you're reading your Bible, I really want you to think about doing this. And you see the word servant or bondservant. And again, bondservant, it's just a made-up word. Like, it doesn't exist. But when you see the word servant or bondservant with a little superscript and you go down and it says this is slave, just mark it out and write slave. Do that all through your New Testament. Something will change as you read the Scriptures. You're missing something if you're not doing that right now. Why? Because God did not hire servants when Jesus came and died on the cross. He purchased slaves. You have been bought with a price. So no matter how well-intentioned we are, when we, we look at the translations, we're not smarter than God. He's trying to teach us something by using this word, and we need to grasp it. Is it really a big deal? I think it is. Servants are hired. Servants can quit. Servants live on their own. Servants work just limited hours during the day. You see, slaves are purchased. Slaves are owned. Slaves live to please their masters. They work day and night. And the modern conception of our relationship to Jesus could not be more different than Lord and Master and slave. Can you imagine if this were on TBN or some Christian network? If that's what they leaned on most heavily as the scriptures do? I don't think people would watch that channel. No, 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 no. It's, it's much better to, to describe Jesus as your helper. He's your, your co-pilot. He's your buddy. He's the one that's going to meet all of your needs. He's going to fulfill all of your hopes and aspirations. Just look to Him. He's going to make your personal fulfillment a reality. He's going to complete you and touch up your little blemishes. This is not the gospel. Jesus came and died and He is your Lord and your Master whether you acknowledge him or not. Most people today, I think, implicitly believe that Jesus actually came to serve them, to please them, to make them feel better. That's not the case. You have a master. If you have faith in Christ, and your desire is to please him. He's your Lord. God hasn't called you to be his hired help. You've been purchased, 1 Corinthians 6.20. You've been bought with a price. He's your king. I want to conclude with this before we partake of the Lord's Supper. Our culture denigrates anyone who has ever owned slaves. Statues are thrown down. Just read last week, Abraham Lincoln's statue was removed from some university in the Northeast. Do you know who has owned the most slaves in all of human history? 
Jesus. The man from Nazareth. If Jesus is not your master today, then you're still in slavery to sin and death, and your eternal destiny is unfortunately hell. Christ came to earth and died for sinners just like each one of you and just like me. And he calls you to trust in him as Lord and as Savior. He paid the penalty with his own blood to free those all, all those who would come to him from the dominion of evil. And he still calls today, calls each one of you, if anyone would come to me, come, all you who are weak and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Place your trust in Christ Jesus today. Why is that? Because he was the perfect Slave on earth, he was the perfect example of what it means to serve in obedience. He obeyed his father even unto death on the cross. And then he gave us the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and a baptism to remind us of all God's good and mighty work. The Lord's Supper.